The other night I was in a spelling bee with Thomas Hayes and Marshall, who's, we'll keep pointing at the absent Marshall. And the rules of this spelling bee, which we should have definitely won and only lost because of cheating. Well, one of the words we missed was botryoidal. You try to spell it. If you've heard of that word or ever seen it anywhere in your life before, I would love for you to talk to me. And I want to ask you why you're reading books that have the word botryoidal in them. But one of the things that had happened in this spelling bee, you had three people and we had a whiteboard and they would read the word, they would define the word, they would read the word again, and then they would say, and you could not start until they did, you may begin writing. And see, my temptation, my temptation, I was our scribe and I was sitting there. I noticed Thomas would do it too, and Marshall would say, don't write, don't write, don't write. She would say the word, and I would want to start writing as soon as I heard it. He would say, don't write. And I told Marshall, I had, as a child, what you might call a blurting problem. (laughs) In elementary school, the primary crime that I committed repeatedly was when the teacher asked a question, say, 62, 62. The American Revolution, 1776. I was in an emergency to pronounce the answer, and I always got in trouble because I would not raise my hand. Or if I did raise my hand, it was just a formality because I was still going to shout out. That might have been because I was an insufferable know-it-all or because I was a maturely curious student, so engaged in the learning process that I couldn't, I couldn't be silent while there was knowledge to be had. It was probably that. It's possible to think of John, the beloved apostle, the one that Jesus loved, who wrote this 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, who also wrote Revelation, that maybe he had a blurting problem himself. Part of my blurting was this sense that I had the answer and I needed to share it. And that was probably bad for me. But for John, the apostle, he starts this letter, this epistle, as they call it in New Testament studies. He starts this letter without the conventions of welcome and greeting, the niceties that you're accustomed to seeing when, say, the apostle Paul writes something, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who has called us. By his grace, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Together with Timothy, we write you. He, all over the place, when there are letters, there are identification marks. Who wrote it? Who they're writing to? How you doing? How you, what's, how, what, what's up? And John just blurts out. That which was from the beginning. He just starts. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Sounds pretty heavy. The word of life. In 3D, an audio-visual rendition of God that we could be in relationship with, that we could connect to. The life appeared. We've seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life And I realize I'm just reading what Bailey just read. But repetition never hurt anybody unless it was drugs. 
we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so you also may have fellowship with us. The Apostle John, not unlike Katniss Everdeen, J-Law, you might know her as. Does anybody know the Hunger Games? Who says, you always remember the face of the one who is your last hope. You always remember the face of the one who is your last hope. And John here has a certain urgency. A certain urgency to speaking into a community. We don't know much about the community. We don't know to whom he's writing. That's why these James and John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter, these are called the Catholic epistles, general epistles. They're not written to a specific audience. They're not written to Corinth or Ephesus. But he's writing to this church that he knows about, to these believers that he knows about, with a sense of urgency to say, we have seen our last great hope and we can't forget his face and we want you to see it too. We want you to keep on seeing it. John's likely the last apostle alive at this point. And he says, we proclaim to you what we've seen and what we've heard so you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus. We write this to make our joy complete. When you come across that awful moment when you realize in the tail end of December, I mean November, and you wake up and you're in a mall or, you know, if you're being punished for something, or if you turn on the radio and you suddenly hear, oh, there's no place like home for the holidays, and you think, what is he talking about? Who really thinks that? No, some of us think that. Some of us love being at home for the holidays, and others of us are like, well, yeah, it'd be fantastic to be home if the people that lived there weren't there. (laughs) But there's this nostalgia that gets kicked up in Christmas time. A confluence of things lost, the magic of what you hoped for when you were a child at Christmas, the, the lights... Like little Royce upstairs when they made their Christmas tree would say, let's turn off the lights so we could just look at the lights of the tree. The magic of just watching the lights on the tree. There's this kicked up sense of need in us. And these songs awaken it. And that's why people feel so sad at Christmas and hateful. Is that cynical? And sometimes happy. Until it's all over. And it didn't do the trick quite as they might have hoped. John here, with an urgency, gives us a sense of what we really need by recognizing that there was one who came from before any of this existed. And he has come with a want of his own that addresses the need that we have. His want intersects with our need. His want is for you to be in fellowship with him. Partnership. Communion. 
healing accompaniment so that you're not cosmically isolated or forever orphaned. You want it to be the case that there's no place like home for the holidays. And by God's kindness, some of you experienced that, that. That's so true. But all of you want that in a way. Some place where you feel like you're going to thrive. You're going to be accepted. People are going to be glad that you're there like the bar at Cheers. Some of you need to YouTube. Healing accompaniment. We proclaim what we have seen, the last great hope, the face we cannot forget, so you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with God, the Father, and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we have to tell you about this so that your joy can be complete. A joy that Bing Crosby will not complete for you, but he might awaken for you. A joy that the Christmas gifts that you give to your children or that they receive may awaken but will not completely complete. Someone recently said, if more information was what we needed, we'd all be billionaires with perfect abs. If more information was what we needed, we'd all be billionaires with perfect abs. You can, at this very moment, Get on the webs, the interwebs. You can do it even in church. There's Wi-Fi. I'm glad I told you that. And you could find out what the perfect diet is to reduce your body fat. You could find out all great manner of core exercises that you could do. You could find out how to manage your money better, how to invest more wisely. You could find out what the best deal on a car is. There's all manner of limitless information, but it doesn't make us really any better. It doesn't make us billionaires, and we don't have, well, some of you do. I mean, like me, but you don't have perfect abs. Because it isn't more information that you need. It's a person, John says, and God's want is for you to be in fellowship with him. This healing accompaniment that he offers to you, John is offering in this book that we're going to look at at Christmas. So healing accompaniment, to think of, I have this deep ache, and God has this want that has driven him into the world to meet, to say, here, I want you to belong to me. I want you, when you go to Fairland School, to accompany me as you go. I want to accompany you as you go to Unum to work, and as you go to the construction site, and as you go to Covenant College, as you wash the dishes, and do the laundry. I want to be in fellowship with you. The other thing John indicates to us is that there's joyful cleansing. Joyful cleansing that God wants for us and that we need. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. The other day, I was walking downtown. Nope, 
not true. I was walking downtown, but that's not how I meant to start this. But I have walked downtown many times and thought to myself as I was walking from my car to a restaurant for lunch, my goodness, there is a whole artistic array of bird defecation here all over the place. When do they do this? I hope, and then when I notice it, I tend to pick up my pace and try to get on so that I am not an impediment between their delivery and the ground's reception. But it's always been peculiar to me. How is there so much of this on the ground and, you know, nothing ever comes down? Well, the other day after lunch, I was talking to my friend Lynn Teague, and we were talking in the middle of something here, and Lynn said, And what he was doing was pointing at my shoulder. And I looked at my shoulder. And I had, as they say, been hit. And it was awful. Because what are you going to do? You can't just say, well, the day's over. I quit. That's what you want to say. I quit. I guess I'll go home for the rest of the week. (laughs) Everything's against me. Job's got nothing on me. (laughs) But there were a couple things about that that were fairly interesting. One was I realized later in the day, as I was leading my small group that night, I had gone and worked out beforehand, and I thought usually I would would redress. And this time I just put on like a workout jacket over and led the small group that way. And I felt embarrassed about it, but I thought I'm going to need to cover up. I don't want people to be around my poop-stained shirt. You need to cover it. And see, this is what happens to people. There's a lot of stuff in us that we want to cover up. There's a lot of stuff in us that, like a, a shirt that's got a stain on it, you think, well, I can still wear this as long as I wear a sweater over it. As long as it's perennially covered. If it's obscured in some way, no one has to see it. And John makes it clear that the people who enter into fellowship with God, they get to start walking in the light, and the reason they can walk in the light is because they have a means of getting the stains scrubbed out so they don't actually have to hide them. They don't need a sweater to cover them up because God has laundered them. I brought my shirt home that day, and I gave it to Kathy and said, here, you know what to do with this. She knows what to do. I don't know what to do, but she's got it clean. I presume it'll be clean. One of these days, you'll see a white shirt that will have been pooped on, and you you won't know unless she threw it away, and I won't know. I don't know what happened, and I I I don't know what the inventory is. But John says that the way that you get the deep need you have to not be so polluted to not have to cover up yourself, to be ashamed of who you are and what you've been, to have these things about yourself that you think, if anybody sees this, they're going to run away forever, or I would be so exposed I would not be able to live with myself. John says, actually, you know, God came here to give you fellowship, and one of the things he knew you needed for that was that you would have the mildew stains of your heart Cloroxed by the blood of Jesus. That his sacrifice is like a 
bit of shout on your stained white carpet. It gets all the deep, grimy stuff out. Sometimes you get to feel that. And when you feel it and believe it, it's very freeing. And other times, if you don't feel it, you still just believe it and act as if it's so. That's part of what trusting God is. It's coming into the light and saying, I look to Jesus to purify me from everything I want to hide from everybody else. Because we know it's true. John insists on it that we walk in the light and not in the darkness. The other thing that's amazing about this, this joyful cleansing, it's, it's to be received, but it's also to be shared. One of the great consolations as I stood there and, and Len went, he didn't go, ah, <laughs> if we had been teenagers, that's what he would have done. He would have taken a picture of it and he would put it on Instagram and he would have been laughing hysterically and, and then he would have like thrown it in my ear or something. But he was a grown man and so, you know, men at, what, I don't know, 50, 55 become mature. And so he was feeling the discomfort of this for me. And he donated some towel in his car. He's like, you can't do this, man. To help wipe, to do the initial cleansing. So at least the lion's share of the, it just looked like I had a strawberry, you know, like I'd gotten chocolate sauce on my shirt or something instead of a pile. This is very graphic, isn't it? More graphic than I was in the other service, my bad. One of the great gifts of the Christian community John wants to share to make his joy complete is to say, hey, we've been called into fellowship with this Jesus, which has fulfilled a great deep ache of ours. And he's cleansed us, and now it's our joy to share it with other people. That one of the things we get to be in this community is a church that, not that is is so exemplary and shiny in all our behavior, Hopefully that happens sometime as the life of Jesus comes out of us. But a, a church also who is able to say, we got stains. We got the residue of muck from our lives that we've done and other people have done. And we're here to help clean each other off. We're here to help p- point people to the, to the cleansing and purification from our pollution that comes from God. Because, you see, it's not just when he talks about purification from sin. Sin is not just something you do or don't do. You know, we think about sin as, you know, don't tell a lie. Help that person who's in need. Sometimes we don't do what we're supposed to do. Sometimes we do what we're not supposed to do. Those are symptoms. When the Bible talks about sin, it's talking about this catastrophic disorder within us that puts us at odds with God. It makes us start renaming our sin. We have to deal with our guilt in some way, so we say, oh, that's not really a sin. This is me living my truth. We oprify it. I'm going to live my truth. I'm going to express myself. This is my highest aim and my best goal. And John says, well, actually what you need is purification. You need to name sin for what it is. And you need to be in a community of people who are believing this together so we can help take care of sins, opening it up, 
showing grace to it and helping each other live in the freedom and the joy of that and making our joy complete as we share it with other people. Healing accompaniment and joyful cleansing to receive and share. This is our need and what God wants to give. And lastly, this is this refreshing sight. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our life. It's happening to me. It might be happening to some of you who are getting in your advanced ages now that I'm 62. I have noticed that what people told me at some point I would start to need glasses. And I walk around in this curmudgeonly state in our house, which has all these lovely lamps, thinking, why is it so dark in here? I can't read anything. And I have to put, and I love the lamps, actually. I just, the problem is I just can't see. And so I, I'm, if I have to read anything other than on a computer screen or on my phone, I have to light my flashlight of my phone and like put it like this and hold it up to my eye. I've started to realize the light is actually a friend of mine because the dark makes it so that I can't understand anything. And when you start to realize that the light's a friendly thing, not something to hide from, you want to use it. You want to walk in it. And that's part of what John is helping us to do here is he realizes, you know, if you have someone who's purifying your sins, you can actually live in the light. If you don't think you have to take care of it yourself, if you don't have to spend your life exhausted trying to make other people think you're better than you are or trying to act really good so you don't have to actually deal with God, you know you do that sometimes. If I can just do what's right. Just somebody tell me what's right. We'll just get back to doing what's right in America. Then we'll be good. Well, maybe, but you can do what's right and be really wrong with God. You can do what's right to keep God off your back. Because that's not what he's after. He's after fellowship. Which is connection. Which is communion. Which is partnership. Togetherness. So doing what's right has to come along with doing what is pleasing to God. I want to please him by doing that. When you start to realize that... This light is a friend of yours coming into the light of God's presence where more and more sin is going to show up. Can I assure you of that? That one of the best gifts that God would give you is an awareness of failure before him. An awareness of the poison of your sin before him. Not because that's pleasant, but because it really does help you keep coming back to somebody who can clean you up. You got to keep cleaning your toilets. You got to keep cleaning the shower. You got to keep cleaning the dishes. All things get dirty, and so do you. And in the Christian life, as the presence of God increases in your life, as the light of God spreads in your life, the dirt is going to show up more. And so John says, make sure you don't pretend that's not the case. You've heard my analogy, which I love the little Sunday school class where the teacher says, Now, children, what must you do to receive the forgiveness of sins? What must you do to receive the forgiveness of sins? And, and Nigel, the, little, the, the South African boy in our imagination, raises his hand. Children, what must you do to receive the forgiveness of sins? And he blurts out the obvious answer, the only obvious answer. Sin! 
You must sin. To get the forgiveness of sin, you've got to sin in the first place. It's not exactly what she was after, but it's perfect to answer. And it's worth thinking about in our moment, where for us, the only sin in our time, not in the church, but in our time, the only sin is not obeying your desires. See, that's at odds with Christianity. Our sexual inventiveness, sexual permissiveness, our gender fluidity, our our coziness with the power of the government, our greed, our ignoring of the poor, all of these things. And our time, who cares, really? Because the worst sin you can do is not being true to yourself. The worst sin you can do is to not have thrown off all restraint, all authority from everyone except for your own self-authority. And it's interesting, if the eternal word of God came in and thought that one of the main things you needed, when Jesus left, you know, he said, and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name. Wouldn't it be funny that the Son of God went to all that bother, got killed, sacrificed, and there wasn't actually, it turned out, anything that anybody did wrong and needed forgiveness for. Everything you actually normally want, fine. The worst thing you could do is not be true to yourself. The Bible would say the worst thing you could do is not let yourself be killed so that the good desires could be flourished and the ones that are counter to God could be obliterated, purged, so that you could actually be the kind of person you were meant to be. If you start to realize the light is your friend, you won't run away from it. You'll come out into it. You realize that if I cover up my sin, God's going to reveal it. But if I reveal my sin, God's going to, as some would say, cover it up. God wants for you healing accompaniment with him. He wants for you joyful cleansing to receive for yourselves and to share with each other in this world. He wants to give you refreshing sight. It lets you name sin, but then come into the light of his healing shower of cleansing. And I close with this. There's a song that Simon and Garfunkel sing called America. Except they don't say America. <clears throat> and there's a scene in the, as I picture it, it's kind of an epic song and, and his, his girl, Kathy, I've got a Kathy. They're in a field and she falls asleep and he sings these mournful tunes. Kathy, I'm lost, I said. Though I knew she was sleeping. I'm empty and aching and I don't know why. Kathy, I'm lost, I said. Though I knew she was sleeping. I'm empty and aching and I don't know why. At Christmas. And all the times before and after. It's so imperative to realize that the one who existed before time saw the empty and saw the ache and knew why. And says, I want to do something about it. I mean to accompany you in your lostness. I mean to surround you with a community of joyful 
cleansing so that you don't ache so bad. I mean to give you refreshing sight so you can see what it is you ought to hope for. So you can know it's going to come true. Will you respond to God's wants for you by bringing him your needs? I sure hope so. Let's pray.